All right, man. Good to see you this morning. Great to be together. And as you know, we're um, we're taking a, uh, some time to study the character of God so that we might know, as I prayed a moment ago, how it impacts our thinking and our beliefs and our convictions so that it has an effect in our daily walk with God. That is the whole purpose of it. Of course, we know that because if, if our thoughts about God, if, if our convictions about who he is and what he does remains less than he has revealed about himself, then everything is affected in a negative way. Our worship is not as deeply fulfilling and fruitful as it ought to be. We are to worship God. We're called to worship Him. We're commanded to worship Him. It is what we're made to do, is to honor our Creator and to give Him thanks and to extol His greatness from here uh, through eternity. So it won't be as deep and rich and fulfilling if we have less than what God has revealed about Himself in, in our minds, if we think less of Him. It's also true that your convictions get weaker. You, you, um, you don't know how to respond to life and difficulty or your purpose in life becomes murky and cloudy. You don't, you don't have convictions that are immovable and you can get, as Paul warns in Ephesians 4, tossed easily by the, every thought and philosophy and ideology that comes. So you wanna think rightly about God so that our convictions aren't weakened Ultimately, to know our God as he has revealed himself is to strengthen faith because then he will put us in these wonderful uh, tests and circumstances where we are called to believe what he said about himself, even if circumstances uh, are convincing the other way. You know, when Romans 4 talks about the father of our faith, Abraham, and the fact that he believed God, and it was, of course, as a grace, put to his account as righteousness. When he believed God, he had scant evidence of what God had promised. There was no unfolding specificity to his circumstances. It was just go east out of your life of idolatry, and I'll show you where I want you to go. And he went. Genesis 15 says that when God showed him the, the celestial uh, scope of things in the sky, the night sky, he said, I'm going to make you the father of many nations and bless you. He knew it was a spiritual promise. It wasn't merely national promises of a people and a nation, a great nation on the earth. It was a long-term spiritual promise. We know that because he believed God, it says. And... Romans 4 tells us, however, that it wasn't an easy moment of faith because his circumstances, as the promises of God unfolded, the promise of a redeemer to come through the line, the promise of eternal covenant with his people that would come by faith, it wasn't easy to believe that promise because circumstances were that there's no way a child could come. There would be no way. Abraham was too old, Sarah was too old, and Romans 4 says that in hope against hope, he believed God without wavering in his faith. So to understand God in 
what he's revealed about himself. It's to strengthen faith because God puts us then in circumstances where you have to call to mind and call to conviction and call to obedience those truths that you know about God when your circumstances don't make sense, when nothing is, is solvable in your mind. You can't resolve what's going on. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem to fit. It goes against everything that we might find uh, normal, natural, maybe even healthy. Our, our view of what is a healthy circumstance in life and what is good for us in life. It doesn't make sense, but in, in those tests, to know who God is and call to mind his perfections with praise and then settle your faith on it is to strengthen your faith. So if you don't know what God says about himself, your faith in those tests uh, is more easily giving way to doubts, doubts about his love, doubts about his goodness, about his righteousness and his just nature. Eventually, then, your pursuit of Christ's likeness lacks passion because you get disappointed and discouraged, and then you start to resent. Those doubts turn into resentment against God. And eventually, uh, pursuing Christ's likeness slows down because the incentive of God's character is not at the forefront of your mind and the ground of your faith. Your, your doubts are swirling around in your heart and mind. And, of course, your love for him is growing cold. Your love for God remains shallow and therefore easily tossed aside <clears throat> for something in the world. So we've already looked at the supremacy of God. We might even call it the majesty of God. And last time we considered the sovereignty of God. This morning... We want to consider what God has revealed about what he knows. About what he knows. I love the study of the knowledge of God because when I first was exposed to it as a young Christian, it, it literally propelled my interest in understanding the practical influence and impact of, of learning that, what God knows. I mean, I was um, a new Christian above the Arctic Circle at a military site. There were 30 guys there in the dead of winter. It was dark outside 24 hours. You can't feel more alone most of the time in, than in an environment like that. And I was the only, I was one of two Christians among the 30 military guys there. And the rest are angry, resentful, rank, pagan, in an Indian village down the road with pagan Indians, and so it was a very isolated environment. So <clears throat> the fact that God knows what he knows and reveals what he knows in Scripture was a great, uh, it was a blanket to me. It, 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 he knew where I was. He knew what was going on. I'm away from my wife. I'm away from my first daughter. I, I'm I'm looking back at our first child um, being taken to heaven at five months old. I'm looking back on all these circumstances, and the knowledge of God was like a... It just surrounded my Christian life on a daily basis early on. Such a needed doctrine for me. And so studying what God knows is, is wonderful. 
Maybe a good place to start is Psalm 147, just making our way through some passages. It's important to understand that that when you study the knowledge of God or what God knows, <laughs> you pretty much hit a wall early on in the study. But also, <clears throat> it's interesting that, that while you start to realize how little we do understand and how massive and incomprehensible God, God's knowledge is, uh, it, it's also true that the, the bigger God is in your frame of reference, the more the more his nearness comes to your heart and your life and as a comfort to us. It's very interesting the way this, this works because this same God, if he's that infinite and he's that beyond our comprehension, has revealed things about himself directly to his creatures. So there's this great transcendence alongside this great nearness um, sometimes in theological circles, you'll hear those two terms. You'll hear transcendence and you'll hear eminence. So it just means his transcendence in the sense that he's infinite and over all things, and, and in that sense inexhaustible as to our understanding of him, but he's also imminent. He's also near. He's also involved. He's also intimately involved in what is going on with his people. I mean, that's, that alone, as a contrast, is profoundly impacting to the Christian. Notice the same thing here in Psalm 47. Uh, He says here in verse 1, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and praise is becoming. Yahweh builds up Jerusalem and he gathers the outcasts of Israel. So now you've gone from this call to praise him down to the, his work with his people, then the, the kindness and mercy of God, verse 3, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds, and then back to transcendence, he counts the number of the stars and gives, them, gives names to all of them. So now his majesty, great is our Lord and abundant in strength, his power, and then this, his understanding is infinite. And then back to his imminence or nearness, the Lord supports the afflicted and he brings down the wicked to the ground. What the psalmist is doing here in this back and forth between transcendence and imminence is teaching us that he's not to be thought of as transcendent and therefore uninvolved and distant. No, it's out of his infiniteness that comes, comes this great nearness, this desire to be intimately involved in his creation and to do the things that he says here when he's interacting with his people, building up Jerusalem, gathering the outcast, healing the brokenhearted, binding up wounds, supporting the afflicted, and bringing down the wicked to the ground. The very thing that we're most concerned about is how wickedness influences and devastates human life. And he is righteously taking wickedness to the ground and at the same time supporting the afflicted and healing and binding up and building and gathering together. This is just a wonderful sort of out of the gate expression of his transcendence and his imminence. 
which is to say that though his understanding is infinite, his knowledge is infinite, he doesn't keep himself distant with that knowledge. But that knowledge is part of who he is intrinsically and is, though incomprehensible to us, works toward these great ends of the expression of his love and his mercy and his kindness. You don't want to study his knowledge and and its infiniteness and leave yourself with the idea that he doesn't have a concern or care for, for us because of his transcendence. It is out of his transcendence that we learn the profound nature of his intimate desire to be involved. Because why would he? If he knows that much, the big question is, why would he want to be involved? Least of all, with a creation that has become corrupted, why, why would he take any interest at all? He could manifest his wrath and his glory, Romans 9 says, by punishing all wickedness and doing that for all eternity because his holiness is eternal. So if his holiness is eternal, therefore his wrath against anything that is that falls short of his glory would also be eternal. Why doesn't he just do that? He still maintains his infinite knowledge. He still maintains his supremacy and his sovereignty. He doesn't owe his creation anything. He works all that he does for his own perfections and the manifestation of his perfections, the glory of his perfections, the enjoyment of his perfections, the self existent one is completely and utterly satisfied perfectly and infinitely in who he is. So he doesn't need to do all this if, it, if we mean by that that somehow he was lacking something and had to do all this. Human beings sometimes reduce God to cheesy levels. Um, as though God, you know, the, the idea that he had to have a relationship with human beings because he was so lonely and he was wringing his hands in heaven just wondering why they would snub him like they did in the garden. And so he's just waiting for us to come back to him so he can be merciful. This is, this is not what he reveals about himself. As we saw last time, his purposes are ordained and decreed by him and they are perfect even ordaining that a fall would happen so that God in eternity could manifest perfections that we would otherwise not know his creation would otherwise not see manifested such as mercy and grace and the kind of love that gives in the infinite way he has given in Christ so the knowledge of God's transcendence and then this intimate way that he ministers, it is, of course, subsumed in this final statement. Great is our Lord and abundant in power, and his understanding is infinite. It is infinite. John Wesley, that famous quip that he made, bring, bring me a worm that can comprehend a man, and then I'll show you a man that can comprehend the triune God. 
It's true. It's just a great analogy and uh, a wonderful way of sort of setting forth in our minds how to think about this. Psalm 33, the psalmist says in verses 13 to 15 that Yahweh looks from heaven and he sees all the sons of men. And from his dwelling place, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. And then he says this, he who fashions the hearts of them all and he who understands all their works. He understands all their works, all of them, every one of his creatures at all times in all things that his creatures think and do and everything from their beginning to exist in their conception to their eternal destiny. He knows all their works. So when we think about the knowledge of God, it's, it's crucial that we begin to understand that what he has revealed to us is to have an impact or an influence on our life. So let's just sort of explore this a little bit. And we've talked about this as a church before because we've come across passages like Romans 11, uh, 33 and following, where, you know, the unfathomable his ways and unsearchable is our God. As Paul explodes in praise after having discussed the process and program of salvation and redemption between the chosen people of Israel and then the grace of God spreading to Gentile nations through their disobedience, only to then uh, provoke them to jealousy and save a whole bunch more. There's just this great uh, mercy of God, as we called it, in stereo, going back and forth uh, in this great plan of God. And Paul explodes forth in praise in that chapter and just says how, how unfathomable his ways. It's sort of a New Testament expression of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55. Your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. Your ways are higher than my ways. I I can't attain to it. And you're going to accomplish all your purpose and your word is going to go forth and achieve what you have sent it to go forth to achieve. And so when we think about the knowledge of God, it's just great to, to remember that this ought to invoke in us the highest of praises for a God who, who doesn't end up in our minds untouchable and unreachable and unknowable. He ends up in our minds this merciful, kind God of our daily walk who's near even though he knows all things. In fact, we could say, that the impact is supposed to have on our life is that if he does know all things as we're going to see the way that he's revealed it, then we don't have to worry. There is no cause for doubts of his goodness or his justice. Or it doesn't mean we don't talk about the difficulties of life. He's also revealed that life is difficult and man is born for trouble as the sparks fly upward. The world is corrupt, it's fallen. He is on a course to let evil run its course for his glory and his purposes, and we're in that. So we have to discuss the difficulties and trials and challenges of life. But informing it all ought to be our praises for God's 
infinite knowledge of what's going on with our life. So just to sort of back up for a minute, if his understanding is infinite, it comes, be, comes to us because he himself is infinite and therefore his knowledge not only of us is infinite, but his knowledge of himself therefore has to be perfect and infinite. It's important to start here for a second. Just, just think for a moment. God, God's knowledge of who he is is also infinite. Our knowledge is finite. You might know yourself better than the man next to you, and you might know yourself better than anyone around you because you can look inward and know, know your life and your thoughts and, and the things no one can see. But you don't know yourself infinitely because we're not infinite. We're finite. But God, being infinite, knows himself infinitely. You say, well, what are the implications? Well, the scriptures say that he knows who he is, right? I exist, he told Moses. I am that I am. Tell them that. I am that I am has sent me. That's what Moses was to say to the pagan king, Pharaoh. The existing one, the self-existing one has sent me. So he infinitely knows who he is, he also infinitely knows his perfections because when Moses said, show me your glory, he called out his perfections as he was, you know, hiding Moses so that Moses didn't completely incinerate and his soul go out of existence as a, or, or into an eternal existence as one who, died because he's a sinner having looked into the glory of God. No, God shielded him, but while he shielded him, Exodus thirty-three nineteen, God was calling out his perfection. So he knows his own character and perfections infinitely. He knows what he does and why he does it infinitely, and he knows his decrees, his purposes infinitely. If he didn't know himself in this way infinitely, he would not be infinite nor perfect. Therefore, he could not create because he wouldn't even know a purpose behind it or what its outcome was going to be, and he couldn't guarantee that it would happen exactly as he wanted. The, the whole point of starting here is to say, if God knows himself perfectly and infinitely, that is, of course, the basis upon which he can create the world he created and have in its purpose exactly what has to happen for his glory. Sometimes... Rather than get confused about that, my mind just sort of begins to boil it down into things like, look, God being perfect and infinite created what he created the way he created it because there was no other way to manifest perfectly and infinitely who he is. Sometimes we think, why, why did he allow a, a fall? Why did he ordain evil to run its course? Even in your theodicy, when you start talking about the problem of evil as theologians spill ink and kill trees to put that on paper, even as we debate those things, we still have to come back to the fact that if he's perfect and infinite, then he knew what he could create. He knows his own power infinitely. He knows his own knowledge infinitely. He knows himself and his character infinitely. So when he created, there wasn't any debate. Well, should I do this? Should I do this? Should I create this? Should I create this? No. 
What comes out of God is perfect and infinite, so the world that he created is not in doubt or question in God's mind. Decades ago now, probably, almost, or about 20 years ago, <clears throat> these debates began at a, at a Baptist seminary, BGC, Bethel Seminary, and theologians and philosophers were trying to think about the knowledge of God, what he does know, and as is always the case, if you build your understanding of God primarily on philosophical questions and philosophical ideas, you're going to run aground because the scriptures will not be bound to the esoteric questions and answers of men. It will not. It's wonderful to pine away over those things. Brilliant men given intelligence by God have often gone down that road and, and played around and frolicked in the playground of philosophy because they're brilliant enough to do it. But as Paul pointed out in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I will not play around with you in the playground of esoteric things because I know that your faith would then rest on the, on the brilliance of men as is always the case, when we mess around with those things, we go astray. And that's exactly what happened in those lectures at Bethel Seminary. Uh, Clark Pinnock and Greg Boyd and Sanders and those men began to ponder the knowledge of God and ended up where you would end up if you answer those questions philosophically rather than biblically. Well, then he must not really know. In order for him to have an intimate relationship with his creatures, in order for him to have real relationship rather than us being just robots under this transcendent God who knows all things perfectly and does all things the way he wants to do them, that's not how he wants us to view him. He wants us to view him as a relating God who has a genuine relationship with human beings. And what do we know about human relationships when they're genuine? Two people who have to learn about each other, and they have to grow in their knowledge about each other, and they have to react to each other. That's what makes a genuine relationship. And so since we're made in the image of God, and that's what we reflect, that must be what he's like. And therefore, he, uh, to have a genuine relationship with his creatures, he, ha he can't know the future. He can't know all things like that. He can't be infinite in his knowledge of those things he, because then it wouldn't be genuine. He would have, it would just be like a bunch of little robots in a big program and he's just the puppeteer and he's just doing it and we're just walking along. That's how they viewed it. And yet the scriptures completely defy such a view. His understanding is infinite. One sentence, all those lectures useless. And they came up with ideas like open theism. The future is open to God. He doesn't really know all the future human free choices. And, and for man to be really free, he has to be libertarianly free. That is to say, he has to have the power to choose one thing over another and not be coerced by some ordained decree from God in God's sovereign plan. So they just solved the mystery by making God more like man. But the scriptures are clear that if God is infinite and he's perfect, then he knew exactly the kind of moral universe to create in order to have a genuine relationship with creatures he made in his image. He knows how to do that. And he knows what its purpose is. It's perfect. 
its course that it's going to run is perfect. He, he didn't have to think it out and weigh things in the balance. It just comes out of his infinite perfections and his infinite knowledge, both of himself and his power and what he can create and what he would create for the magnification of his glory throughout all eternity. In fact, we could say there was no other potential world, though there are potential worlds he could have created, there was no other potential one that would accomplish what he wanted to accomplish the way this one does. We have to know that because if God's knowledge is infinite, then he has knowledge of all potential things, even things that he did not decree. He knows them all because his knowledge is infinite. He knows what he could create because he knows his power infinitely. He knows all the possible worlds that he never purposed to create. He knows them all because his understanding is infinite. God can create in his power innumerable worlds and creatures. He knows all the potential, but he created the one he created. Not by debate, not by philosophical questions that come up in God's mind, not by wondering how he's going to make it all work. The, the open theist and process theologian guys said that, you know, when we would ask them the question, well, how does God guarantee then your salvation? And how does he guarantee that it's going to go on for eternity? All these promises he made, how, how does he guarantee that if he doesn't know the future? And if you're still a moral being after this life into the eternal things, then how does he hold you there? How does he guarantee that? Well, they said he's pretty resourceful. He's very resourceful, and he knows, he knows a circum set of circumstances and all the potential ways to get a human being to choose a certain way, and so he, he orchestrates all these inanimate things and all these uh, circumstantial things to put you, cor sort of corner you so that you'll only make the choice that, that he resourcefully wants you to make to accomplish the purpose. Wow. <laughs> He can do all that? Oh, yeah, he can do all that. <laughs> for, for what? Like, um, so if you're saying he'll do all that. In fact, the question came up, did he ever, does he ever move on some human being's will? It, it, because if it's a future human-free choice and he corners you to make sure you make the choice he wants you to make because he's resourceful, are there ever times where he just has to override a human being's will? Well, there are. There are times, they said. But it's, it would be very uncommon. And if for man to be free, he can't do that very often. I kid you not, that's exactly what came out of those lectures. It's pathetic. And, and what it has done now 20 years later is it has left people without hope because a God like that can't guarantee my salvation. When you live in a sinful world and you want sin to be dealt with and you want wickedness to finally be dealt with and you want God to actually bring down the wicked to the ground, look, you have no guarantee if God hasn't, if he doesn't have infinite knowledge of the kind of moral world he created and the course the world's going to take and from start to finish has ordained it for the ultimate magnification of his glory in all things through all eternity. If he doesn't have infinite knowledge of what he created and what he could have created and didn't, he is not God. And there is no guarantee and there is no hope. So you see, it becomes very, very important when you think about God understanding all things like that. 
Romans 4.17 says, He is the God who calls the things which do not exist into existence. That's not just a reference to his power. That's a reference to the possibilities. All things that do exist, he calls them into existence the way he wants to, uh, for the time period he wants to, for the eternal purposes that he has desired, because he has the infinite power to do them, and he knows infinitely its ultimate purpose and what it will accomplish. And all of this came out of God, not by deliberation or debate. He, in the inner Trinitarian union of his personhood, decreed it out of his character because it's infinite and it's perfect. There was no deliberating and thinking. And Now, he communicates to us in ways that seem like the Trinity you know, is deliberating on things. Like you see that in Genesis 1. Let us make man in our own image. As, as if they're talking to one another and asking for an agreement, but they're never not in agreement. All the persons of the Godhead are always infinite in knowledge, infinitely perfect, and always aligned because even though he is a triune God and exists in three persons. He is one essence, one God. Therefore, he's one infiniteness. He's one perfection. He's So don't imagine that there was deliberation that went on. When he created you, your life, when he decreed your life, when he purposed your life, and you are living your life, there isn't anything he doesn't know about it nor anything about it that isn't purposeful and going to accomplish all his good purposes. This is why Ephesians 1.11, in such concise words, says that he works all things after the counsel of his own will. Look, if his will is infinite and it's perfect, then the all things that he's working out includes your life, and therefore everything that happens is going to fulfill his purposes because he knows exactly what he wanted to do with it. He, is, he has infinite knowledge of the past. Isaiah 41, 22, let them show the former things. Bring your gods forth and all your, your scholars and all your wise men and tell them to, to show the former things. They can't. I, I speak them before they happen. That's the difference between me and your false gods. I say things and they happen exactly as I say them. Why? Because I've ordained them to happen. I know the past infinitely because I ordained the past. When you look back at it, these are the things I ordained. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And so to show you the difference between me and the false gods, I said them beforehand through prophets so that you would know that I alone am the living and true God. And as to his knowledge of the present, <laughs> Hebrews 4.13 powerful. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but here it is. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do or to whom we are accountable. All things, all thoughts, all intentions, all imaginations, all deeds, all words, all circumstances, all things are open to him. If that weren't true, then 
Man would know something that is concealed from God. And therefore, he wouldn't be God. Nor, nor could God govern his creation in any meaningful way or properly because he could not have considered all possible variables. He couldn't prescribe laws to man. He couldn't prescribe laws to the universe because it would not have all things taken into consideration. And yet God, in his person and his character, knows and understands all things. And they're all laid before him, bare. There's nothing concealed. So he knows himself infinitely and perfectly, and he knows all potential things as it relates to what he actually does do and has done and is doing. He also knows all past, present, and he knows all future things. God's infinite power is able to perfectly accomplish what he has resolved to do. Therefore, he has foreordination and therefore foreknowledge. He knows by foreordination. He's ordained it. Again, it's important to think about its opposite. If there was a time when God was ignorant of most things in this world, then he couldn't guarantee anything he's promised us regarding eternity. This is why Psalm 139 is crucial, because Psalm 139 speaks of what he knows and his omniscience particularly. We turn to this psalm often when people are in the throes of grave difficulty and painful trials, because the psalmist is bringing this tremendous character of God down to our life. Yahweh, you have searched me and known me, all my circumstances, when I sit down, when I rise up, you, you understand my thoughts. Uh, he knows not only what you think, but where it fits, where what you think fits into the grand scheme of all that he's ordained and its purposes. He knows the basis upon which you think your thoughts. He knows where they come from. He knows what's corrupt about them and what's spirit-filled about them. He knows the line between those two, right? Hebrews 4.12, the word of God cuts down to the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God, by his spirit, through what he has written, when you read it, it goes down by his spirit into your inner life and can make a division between thoughts and intentions. You and I can't even do that. Sometimes we don't know our motives, our ultimate motives, but God knows your thoughts, not just knows them, but understands them. It's that great expression often used in the Psalms about the, the intimate understanding at the deepest level. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. You're intimately acquainted. There's another wonderful bit of poetry, intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You know exactly the future because you have ordained all these things. Again, it brings us back to the questions. Well, then how is it that we're not robots? Well, 
God says we're not, so we're not. I don't know what else you want to do. You don't, you don't bump into a wall and say, I'm glad that's over. You go around the wall. You get up in the morning. You don't say, all right, Lord, which shirt do you want me to put on? You just put on a shirt. God made us moral agents and agents with a will, and we make choices. We're moral beings. We are made in his image so that we have reasoning, and we have emotion, and we have a will, and we have ways that we act. And in his image, we create, and in his image, we reason, and we think. We even have self-consciousness. We contemplate our own existence. That's what makes us different, Psalm 8 says, from the rest of the created animal world that's animated. We are above them. We rule over them because we're made in God's image. And we ultimately then have self-consciousness. We contemplate our existence. Contrary to what some people think, animals do not contemplate their existence. I know sometimes we attribute to, to our pets human qualities because it just looks like they do those things. They don't have self-consciousness. They don't contemplate the meaning of life like human beings do. Well, that's because we reflect the image of our great God having been made in his image. So, so we can reason these things out and think these things through. And our great God says we're not robotic. He didn't make us to be uh, something not in his image. If we were robotic, God would be robotic. I never could figure out why the open theist didn't make the opposite argument and correct themselves. I mean, if you want to say we're robots and therefore that makes me wonder if God really does intimately know and really we're, we should be held responsible for sin, just think about it in the reverse. If we're made in his image, then anything you think about yourself, it has to align with what God's revealed about himself, or you can correct and align your thinking with God's. We can't be robots because God isn't a robot. He's a living being, the self-existent one. We're made in his image. You cannot be other than a moral agent with reasoning because God is a moral being. He's holy. He's righteous. Therefore, we are moral beings made in his image. He said, well, then how, how does my daily choice fit into such statements like that before there's a word on my tongue? You know it all. You even know what I'm going to say. You know the thoughts that drive what I'm going to say. You have ordained all things. That's true. He is so transcendent, so infinite, and so purposing that all things work after the counsel of his will. There's no denying it. It is a meticulous supremacy and sovereignty and knowledge that is intimate. You say, well, then I don't, I don't understand how that works. That's true. You don't. I don't. That's the difference between us and God. He reveals what he reveals, and then he calls us to believe such things, not because we can understand them, through and through to the depths, but because he said them. In fact, the scriptures are clear. The moment you become aware of the clarity of God's revelation, you are obligated to submit to it and believe it. 
So skepticism of the heart that demands that God prove himself to us before we believe it is unbelief, therefore it's sinful. It wasn't too many years ago that, that a Northeast famous pastor was saying, we need skeptics in the church because they keep Christians honest. No, they don't. Skeptics don't, need, don't keep Christians honest. God keeps Christians honest. The Spirit of God keeps Christians honest. But in an evangelistic sort of framework, some pastors have believed that you need a skeptic because a skeptic is the real honest one. He's the one that keeps you from, from just listening to platitudes and just believing that you have to answer all the hard questions, the philosophical questions. How can we be moral beings held responsible when God is so sovereign? How are we not robots? If you can't answer that, then you're not being honest, they say. But actually, the scriptures are clear. You are obligated to your God, right? Hebrews 4, 13, all things are open and laid bare before him with whom we have to do. In other words, every human being is morally accountable to our creator. And so everything he says or reveals about himself, you are responsible. And in fact, it's enough to judge you. You're without excuse, Romans 1 says, even from the basic moral framework God's put inside human beings. All the invisible attributes that, that are unplumbable and inexhaustible that you can't see in all of their perfections, they are made evident to us by what has been made, even yourself. When you know yourself as a human being and you look at yourself and you look at other human beings, that is God revealing his attributes his power, and our accountability. Because you have a conscience, you know you're a moral being, and you must respond to him. But we suppress that because we're corrupt. Every human being knows it, though. And so if that's true, then the idea of skepticism when God says what he says, even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, oh, Lord, you know it all. To, to try to put God on trial in his character before you actually submit to believing it is suicide spiritually. We are to believe what God says about himself, even as we seek to understand its application in our life or to plumb the depths of his revelation to understand it. Skepticism is unbelief, and it is rejected by God as such. There's nothing honest about it. It's an attempt to put God on trial, and we are not to do those things. Job tried that, by the way. You know, Job got into that difficulty. He, uh, he suffered unimaginable things in the course of a day, or he might even say half a day. And um, he did not blaspheme God. He did not curse God, even though his partner in life as a woman struggled in her depression and discouragement and, and just really railed at him about, you know, this life needs to be over. Why go through all this pain? Let's just go be with God. It's over. And, and frankly, he's not a good God. And so even in the beginning of the trial, Job's faith was being tested, but strong enough to say that he, in all this, he did not accuse God. And after a while, with some time and questions and some really um, bad theology from some friends who really weren't the best counselors, 
Job began to consider that maybe God was not fair or just because Job had been upright. And if Job had been up, upright and these things came down upon him, there must be something amiss. Either God has missed something um, or I have some, some due justice coming. In the end, somebody's got to make this right. And of course, it's very interesting, isn't it, that Elihu comes along in, in uh, chapter 37, at the end of chapter 37, says to Job, you need to consider the wonders of God. I mean, there was finally a sane voice in the matter. In fact, not all the counsel about God's character was bad on the part of his counselors, but they tried to tempt Job with a framework that they were lost in, which basically said if bad things are happening to you, then something unjust has been happening and, and something needs to be made right. God, it, God has to be questioned. And so Job did. He questioned God. He said, I thought he didn't sin. Well, God's testimony was in all those things Job did not sin. Job, however, repented of having questioned God's goodness. So Job thought he sinned. What God meant was that he did not blaspheme God. He did not reject God. God proved the power of saving grace to Satan through Job's life and trials. And so in that sense, he did not sin because he never cursed God. Uh, but he did question God's goodness, for which he repented. And after Elihu's counsel, it's interesting, chapter 38, God opens up his own little reverse Q&A with Job. You cinch up your belt, and I'll ask you some questions since you've entered into the inner Trinitarian chamber. You've darkened counsel. I mean, you have approached God with philosophical questions and frameworks that you think make sense to you. And you need to think differently, Job. And so for, for all of those chapters... Those remaining chapters, God just asked Job questions that prove Job does not have infinite knowledge or understanding of what God is doing and can do and has the power to do and, a purpose and purposes to do. That's all the questions were about. I, I am asking you if you know anything exhaustive about any of these things that occur in the created universe from the setting of the earth and its solar system through animal life, weather patterns, the heavens, future storehouses for the judgment that has been promised and will come. Do you know anything about any of these things? I'll ask you. In fact, in his second round of questions after Job put his hand over his mouth, which isn't what God ultimately wanted. Job did not, God did not want Job silent on the matter. Job got silenced after the first round of questions, put his hand over his mouth, and, and God started a second round of questions. And the second round of questions, though it had to do with creation and sustaining these things, it, it essentially was a way of saying, are you going to find fault with the only one who can find fault? In other words, I'm the fault finder. 
I'm the divine standard. I'm the righteous judge. I'm the infinite one. And you're going to find fault with my purposes and my dealings when you are not infinite and you are already a sinner? You're a finite creature who isn't perfect. I'm an infinite being who is perfect. Are you going to find fault with the fault finder? So it was, it was a way of confronting Job with his questions about God's purposes. Now that becomes important for us because if God's knowledge is infinite, all your ways, as Job said it in Job 31.4. His eyes are upon all the ways of man, seeing all his goings, Job 34. And if his knowledge of the future is perfect, and his knowledge of the present is intimate and perfect and inexhaustible, then, then to ask God to prove to you why he does what he does, ends up worthy of rebuke, reproof. In fact, Job got the point, right? The end of the book, chapter 42, he takes his hand off his mouth and he says some of the most wonderful expressions about the lessons he needed to learn. Just a reminder, as our time is fading here, <laughs> I love this, verse two. I know that you can do all things. There's God's power. That no purpose of yours can be thwarted. There's his sovereignty. And we would say by implication, his knowledge, by inference, his knowledge. And then Job refers back to the original question because God said, who is this that Darkens counsel without knowledge. So Job repeats it. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which, look at this, I did not understand. What's the implication? You understand. You understand, and I didn't. Things too wonderful for me, which is to say, outside of the realm of my grasp or capacity, and I did not know them. So here now, and I will speak. I take my hand off my mouth. This is what God wanted. I will ask you, not as a skeptic, but as a student, and you will instruct me. I came to learn, he said. I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. I, I get it. I understand. And therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. By the way, in God's Q&A, it was all about the purposes of God that Job could see. Uh, as to creation in front of him. Where, were you around when I did this? And do you know anything about this? And do you know anything about this? And the animal world and the weather and the future judgment and man, you know, grandiose things that man can see and, and has some exposure to. He, you know what's interesting? He never told him anything happening in the spiritual realm, which would have been, I think, 
Here's, here's the puniness of my thinking. My mind immediately goes to, it would have been really helpful, God, if you'd have just said, look, I am proving to Satan that when I save, I know how to preserve that. It's my power that preserves it, and no child of mine will ever curse God like that and reject him because I save them, and I save them eternally. And my mind immediate, my puny thoughts immediately go to, oh, that, that would be so settling. Really? It would be settling? No, because what we do is we say, well, if you want to prove that, then just prove you can keep me away from devastation happening to me. Just prove your power that you can end all this evil and I never have to go anything bad through anything bad. Prove, prove that. And then that's exactly what your human heart does. You got to do more than just you know, tell me that you're keeping me saved. I want to be kept out of trouble. I don't want you to just save me in eternity. I'll, I'll, I'll like that when I get to it. But right here and now, you took my family. You gave me a disease. You wounded. You hurt me. How am I supposed to make sense of that? But you notice in, in the instruction of Job, he never told him any of that. And I think that's like the exclamation point on the lesson he was teaching, this pitiful, fallen angel, Satan, who knows his time is short and, and somehow, as J.I. Packer says, has a maggot in his mind, some twisted thinking that he thinks he can overthrow his creator. No, he didn't tell Job any of that. Not even later do we know that he told Job any of that. And um, this being the oldest extant piece of literature, it seems, perhaps, if scholarship has demonstrated that, then Job died before he had an opportunity to see anything else. So we read this book and suddenly there are these things happening. Um, Job pens it just out of revelation. Later. And it must have been profound to him. Oh, oh, that's what was going on. But God wanted his repentance before any of that. He wanted the lesson to hit home. I have infinite knowledge of all things and a purpose in all of them. If you know how to explain that, then bring it. If you don't know how to explain it, this is the response I want. I've declared that which I did not understand. How many, how many times have we declared to God that which we think we understand? And yet God, God doesn't want us to not speak but he wants us to say, I've heard you by the hearing of the ear, and now my eye sees you. I will ask you, and you instruct me. Lord, you instruct me. It's like Psalm 119, 73. Your hands made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commands. Help me be righteous when my friends have forsaken me, and, and I don't know when the they're going to return to me or whether they'll return to me. But somebody lied against my life and my reputation. I've lost all my friends, the psalmist said. And so first words out of his mouth, you give me understanding. 
You, your hands made me and fashioned me. You created me and you fashioned all the intricate details. So you give me understanding that I may learn your commands. That's what Job is saying here. I'll ask you and you instruct me. I'm not going to ask you so that you can prove to me that you know what you're doing. I'm going to ask you as a student, not as a skeptic. And you instruct me. Isn't it sweet that in Psalm 32, God says through the psalmist, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And it's just a poetic way of intimate knowledge. I will counsel you with an intimate knowledge of your life. All my counsel and my instruction will be perfect and tailor-made for your life, whatever's happening in it. This is what Job was acknowledging, God's infinite knowledge. Isn't it any wonder that Paul said in Romans 11, I look at redemption, I look at you choosing a people that were not a people, and you didn't even, it wasn't because of who they were, you just did it out of love. You raised them up, through them comes this redeemer, and you preserved the line the whole time. Even when there was going to be one final bloodline person on the earth that would have been destroyed, and Haman was going to destroy Mordecai, and that would have destroyed the line. Even you preserved Mordecai so that the line... I mean, you come down to the detail and your line, the line of the Messiah never fails. You've orchestrated all that, and then you harden my kinsmen, Israel. They kill you as the way for redemption to happen. They kill their Messiah... And your plan was to explode grace upon the Gentile nations as you'd always promised. And we totally misunderstood it as a people. But you knew what you were doing and you, you did all that because then you said you're going to provoke our people to jealousy and a whole new crop of saved people in Israel are going to come about, Romans eleven twenty six, And I don't even know what to say. How unfathomable are your ways? Wouldn't it be great to say that to God at the front end of a difficulty in our life? Instead of just only at the back end? We should say it all the way through. We should say it at the back end. We should know it even more at the back end. He's so patient and kind, but wouldn't it be great to say it on the front end? Shall we accept good from God and not adversity? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Man, it's so hard. It's impossible apart from the grace of God to stay there. So let's talk about this, men. Let's flesh this out a little bit in the remaining moments that we have. I know that's a, that's a grand subject, but it is intended to teach us to not lose hope or lose heart. Dan, do we have a microphone we can put in front of these guys so that our... Tape doesn't lose it. Thank you, Earl. Yeah, what, what's, uh, what's a way we can meditate on this, talk about it? Hello, Pastor. Oh, hey. All right. Uh, my question is, I'm actually really curious because while you're talking about his infinite knowledge, I'm really curious about the understanding of myself and his ability to understand what I will inevitably do 
And in that sense, is our lives determined, predestined, I guess is the word I want to use, yet at the same time, not because I have my free will to choose to do what I guess I'd like to do, but he knows what I will do. So he, that's what I'm trying to understand. Maybe I never will be able to understand this. So in, in the church history debates, as they always have been, uh, as we try to answer questions with what Scripture does say. I already told you, Ephesians 1.11 says he works all things after the counsel of his own will. As the great John Feinberg demonstrated in his discussion of that text, there's no way around the straightforward statement that God meticulously ordains all things. He predestines all these things. At the same time, God doesn't relieve the tension by putting into Scripture our moral framework as agents that choose and the consequences of those choices. So we don't, it's not a framework that we come up with that solves the tension because God doesn't solve the tension. If he leaves the tension in Scripture, that's where it's left because he's the solution to the tension. But he doesn't always answer those questions. But the way in church history they argued it, they have made a distinction when it comes to the will. If you want to read probably one of the finest articles on this, you ought to read John Piper's article, Are There Two Wills in God? It appeared in a two-volume set on the grace of God and the bondage of the will, but it, it has been republished in a single volume called Still Sovereign. That article is, I think, one of the, the clearest ways to look at the tension as, it as God's wills are discussed in Scripture. But when they would discuss this, they talked about the way we make choices. And like I discussed, open theists and process theologians, the future isn't known by God, that view. They basically did that to preserve what they called free will and what they meant by it was libertarian free will. That is to say, human beings must have the freedom to, uh, the power to contrary choice is what they called it. The freedom to choose A or B without coercion. Even, they might say, without a foreordained purpose made out by God. And if it isn't that, then it's not freedom. Here was the problem with libertarian free will, as Bruce Ware, Dr. Bruce Ware from Southern Seminary, pointed out in his critique of this view. It's a book called God's Lesser Glory, and if you, if you really want to read some key chapters on the libertarian view of the will, that's as succinct a discussion as you're going to find on it, unless I don't know of a better one, but... Bruce Ware is crystal clear in there that the libertarian view of the will is mistaken according to um, the critique because no one makes a choice outside of their own desire or nature. We always choose what we most want. So if you had a choice A and B before you, the choice you end up making is never ultimately coerced. In fact, Dr. Ware and I were talking about it one time at a mutual speaking event where he makes the point in there, if somebody has a gun to your head and says, choose this, that could be called coercion. But when we were talking about it, I asked him the question, yeah, but, but if I'm calling that, I'm coerced to choose this because a gun's to my head, am I, am I really not free because I'm still choosing life? 
I'm still making a choice for life, so I'm not really coerced in my choice. I just took life over the alternative. It's still my choice. The point is, I make it according to my nature. Every choice I make is according to my nature. So on the Reformed side, libertarian free will was never considered because we always choose according to our nature. You can never choose something totally neutral. In other words, as if you're neutral. You chose A or B, but if somebody said Y, you'd say, no, I'm just free. I'm free, but it wasn't based upon anything. I just chose it arbitrarily. Well, that's not true. You make a choice based upon who you are by nature. If it's a moral choice, it's always according to your nature. So here's the problem. You can't be totally free if you're born corrupt. And so because we're born children of wrath by nature, Ephesians 2, 3, then every decision of the will is according to your nature. So it will always be according to fallenness. So when we say we're free, we're not really free. That was the whole point of the bondage of the will among the reformers. You're, you're born in bondage, so the choices you make aren't really free as to, as to say they're neutral. So they can't be libertarian or autonomous. So it doesn't win their argument to say, well, if God's so meticulously sovereign, how can I be responsible? I have to have a libertarian free will. No, you don't. You don't have a libertarian free will. You have a will of nature or what, or what uh, Jonathan Edwards called a will of inclination. You're, you're always going to choose what you're inclined to choose. So even in salvation, think about the application here. Even in salvation, when you come to Christ, he has to change your nature. He has to quicken your dead nature, your corrupt nature, and give it life, Ephesians 2.5. He has to make you alive in order for you to choose Christ. So when you came to Christ, if indeed you're in Christ, you chose Christ. You morally chose Christ. You, with your will, chose Christ. But it was because God made your dead nature alive. And it could not come without that. So the will of inclination matters now when we talk about free will. We're only free to choose as moral beings according to our nature as human beings. If you're fallen, you will always choose for self, even if it's religious. And when you're in Christ, you, you could choose no other but in Christ, in salvation, because he changes your nature. The only reason we still make sinful choices is because we're not fully redeemed yet. Our inner man is redeemed, but our outer man is decaying and still has rolling around in there the unredeemed appetites of the flesh until we receive our, our new tent, our glorified body that's going to match the inside. Um, but you could never choose Christ or even a righteous choice. You couldn't please God because you can't please him apart from faith until he changes your nature, at which point in conversion you choose Christ. So the idea that free will exists, libertarian free will, Bruce Ware points out very clearly that's impossible. You always choose according to your nature. So it's the will of inclination. Whatever you're most inclined by your nature to choose, that's what you choose. Until your nature's changed, you're always going to choose self over God. You're always going to suppress truth. Hmm? Right. Now, 
take that then back to the whole issue of God's sovereignty and his meticulous sovereignty. Theologians have tried to create frameworks to understand how it is he can be meticulous and yet still we're moral agents. But God doesn't solve that tension in Scripture. He just says it. All things are ordained by him. He works them all after the counsel of his own will. He will accomplish all his purpose, Nebuchadnezzar said when he finally came to his senses. He's going to accomplish all his purpose. Nothing of his can be thwarted. No one can say with any legitimacy, what have you done? He can't do that. And at the same time, he says, without relieving the tension, you're free moral agents, and you're going to be held accountable for your choices. So, so the problem really isn't with our will uh, as to solving that tension. The problem is we're born corrupt, and God begins there. Because then if you say, well, then how did corruption happen? Now you're into whatever you're going to believe in your theodicy, your problem of evil, your view of the problem of evil, and God doesn't solve that tension. He doesn't tell us how Adam, in untested holiness, loving God perfectly in a relationship with God, willfully rebelled. How, how could that happen? There was no corruption in him. But when, that's why we say it was untested. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a test. It was a moral test. Does God have a right to set moral boundaries in a moral universe he created? Adam said no. Does God have a right to set boundaries on, on your knowledge? I don't want you to go past this boundary and eat from that tree. I don't want you to do that. Does God have a right to say where a man can go and where a man can't go in his knowledge? Adam said no. He doesn't have that right. Does God have a right to put consequences, right? I mean, think about it. Adam loved God perfectly, and yet God gave him a law. That's very interesting to me, because there's a whole movement that says, no, oh, you've got to obey God only out of love, never out of the fear of breaking his law or his standards. Really? Adam loved God perfectly and hadn't sinned yet, and God gave him a rule. Don't eat from this tree. Couldn't Adam have said, what? Why is there a rule? That makes no sense. I love you. I would obey you out of my love for you. A rule? You're putting rules on me? No, he wouldn't even say that because Adam knew his God and loved his God and was in an intimate walk with his God. No corruption at all had come in. And yet God gave him a rule. Why? It was a moral test. I mean, I don't know beyond that how it was that Adam took and ate. I don't know. God doesn't explain that. He just says it's true. And uh, before that, I don't know how a holy moral creature like the angel, Satan, could, could fall. Uh, I don't have any idea. But somewhere between Genesis 1.31 and Genesis 3.1, a third of the angels followed him in corruption. And... Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, whether or not they apply because there's, it might be that they're layered there speaking retrospectively about Satan, possibly. I mean, it's debatable. But even if it were true in Ezekiel's account to the king of Tyre, then evil was found in you, said the prophet about the king. Evil was found in you. If that's a reference in some retrospective way, in a layered way, to, to Satan, which is, as I said, debatable, then um, 
That's all God says about it. Evil was found. <laughs> but he works after all things after the counsel of his own will. So you can't really solve the tension. My point here is to simply say when something happens to you and you're under the knowledge of God and it's happening to you, you, you don't accuse God of being in absolute control like you're a robot. You just don't accuse him of that. Um, this is what Job said. How does, you know, and then and, and Paul reiterates in Romans 9, how does he still find fault? Remember we looked at that last time. How does he still find fault? <laughs> what kind of question is that? How does he find fault? He's the fault finder. He's the ultimate judge. His knowledge is unlimited. If he finds fault and holds moral beings accountable, even though he created them and has ordained all things, he doesn't solve that mystery. Why, what makes us think we're going to solve it? Or worse, hold him accountable for not solving it. That is blasphemous for any creature. And I'm back to John Wesley's comment. You show me a worm that can understand human beings, I'll show you a man that can understand God. That's, that's about where we need to stay. So, yeah, that's a, that's a great challenge to us. We might have to end it there. Gee whiz, this is like an ordination. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Lord, even just explaining these things leaves me just profoundly grateful, intimidated, but strengthened in my hope and my joy the security that comes in knowing that, that I could never have in my will and in my thoughts and my reasons and in my emotions and in all my affections chosen you if you had not changed my darkened understanding and brought life, if you had not quickened and made me alive in Christ. And so that you do not solve these tensions in your revelation for our puny understanding, we confess that they're solved in you. They're solved in your person and in your infinite knowledge. Whatever we think and reason and see happening May we be like Abraham, who in hope against hope believed you and did not waver in our faith. And may we find encouragement in these studies for whatever happens to us in our daily life, from the great accomplishments spiritually and fruitfulness that you give to your people, to the great moments of worship where we finally understand to some degree what it means to lift you high and exalt you, to battles with sin and victories that we've been able to have and yet defeats and discouragements and trials. Whether we're in mountain peaks or the valley of the shadow, your infinite knowledge is, is a comfort to us and strengthens our faith. So thank you for giving it to us in your word. We ask it in your holy name.